I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 19 hours. That's how much online video people are watching on average in a week. And the demand for video is only growing. If you're a content creator, you know the struggle of picking between quality and quantity to grow your channel, especially if you're on a tight budget. But who says you can't have both? With Storyblocks, you get all the stock content you need to create amazing videos fast. While most stock libraries have expensive paperclip pricing, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads for one set price. Download anything from a library of millions of 4K and HD footage clips After Effects templates, music, sound effects, images, and more. Everything is covered by our industry-leading licensing that lets you share your videos anywhere, anytime. Plans start at just $15 a month. Find all the stock you need and create faster than ever so you can tell your story your way. Visit storyblocks.com slash red circle to learn more. Right now at Safeway, get your skin winter ready with big savings on all your favorite skincare products. Shop for deals on items like Gillette Mach 3 razors, Gillette Labs razors and blades, Venus razors and blades, and native shampoo, conditioner, and body wash. Plus, shop the buy two, get one free baking event and save on items like selected varieties of handy foil and good cook pans. Offer expires December 26th. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for full offer details. My family told me later that I was actually sitting on my rocking horse H2 and they were trying to get my attention, but I was like hum- humming and singing. I think I was 10. It was my first time on the stage and I remember fainting. And then I just sang some Schlager and, um, and, and, and everybody was applauding, saying, oh, that was really good. And I, I, I seem to remember that incident. It must have meant something. I was only the guest singer, so I could be pretty crazy, you know, and just sort of tag along, which I did. But, I mean, I, I, I just loved all the people. They were nuts. They were all insane, you know, in a very good way. I never, I was too busy trying to be myself, trying to be myself, not being myself, you know. I just trying so hard. And I had no idea that the song was already so big in the clubs. Like I had zero idea. And I remember 
six in the morning, my performance, you know, and I'm coming out and this wave of shout screams and love, you know, coming towards me, like literally like this wave. And I hadn't even sung a note, the beat started and people went crazy. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Billy Ray Martin, first of all, this has been an enormous pleasure just doing the research. Wow. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you do the research into an artist, you discover parallels and places where you, your lives have crossed yeah. and experiences where they've crossed. And also through the music, mm. certain emotions and times come back up. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's very touching, and you're touched by it. And that was the experience I've I've had. So I want to kick straight yeah. in and talk about the Hamburg that you grew up in, and mm-hmm. what was the ha- Hamburg like at that time, mm-hmm. and what was the family atmosphere like? The ham- <laughs> everybody who was there at the time or grew up in the in the Hamburg of earlier times will confirm what I'm saying. It had soul. <laughs> it it was just full of soul because you had the one of the biggest, the world's biggest harbors there. And it was a time where sailors were coming from all over the world, you know, into Hamburg, bringing their cultures bringing uh, things from overseas. I mean, there were, they were, they were weird things. I mean, they were bringing animals and things that nowadays luckily wouldn't be allowed, you know, but they, they would bring whatever they thought they could maybe sell or give to people, you know. I mean, anything at all, you know, really, really weird and fucked up things as well. And, um, and so, but it was like interesting and strange and, and bizarre. And then of course you had, because of that, you had the whole culture of the red light district, which, you know, was a busy time, let's say, you know, and there was a lot of money to be made. So it was also very glamorous, you know, and uh, the business owners there, I mean, uh, they were up, up to about the mid and 70s, mid 80s, I mean, they were getting seriously rich, you know, and the pimps were legends. I mean, this was like an episode of, you know, like, like, like characters out of Pulp Fiction, Hamburg style. I mean, they were all famous. When one of them died or something, there would be like a Hollywood style burial and every uh, gangster in, in town would be there. I mean, this was like re- the real shit, you know, and so it was just so alive. And my grandmother, who loved Hamburg and who loved the whole scene, um, you know, in the area we grew up in, she made it even more exciting because she made it seem that way, you know, to me as a child, you know, she would take me on walks. And um, I mean, the Sunday walk could be literally down the reaper barn, you know, (laughs) where some people would say, oh, you don't go there. But there was nothing seedy about it for us. It was just looking at the glamorous shop windows and and the paintings and the drawings of ladies. And, you know, so this, I mean, this was a famous, famous time. This was the the heyday of of, uh, Hamburg Harbor, red light district, you know. So it was so full of soul. And there was this, um, there was this, 
a uh, well, I wouldn't call it a shop. It was this place called Harry's Harbor Bazaar. And it was super, super famous. And it was a four-story, a, a, a small, long building, a four-story building that was selling things that sailors had brought. So you could find, um, like there was a floor of called the Dead Zoo. It was all taxidermied animals, you know? <laughs> so that was like weird. And the ground floor was all uh, shells and, and, you know, things from the sea. And also, um, um, what do you might call, you know, parts from ships and, and then, um, you know, the, and, and I mean, there were even shrunken heads there from Africa and from, you know, and so as a kid, it was normal for me. Oh, a shrunken head, you know, no problem. And some people have said to me, and now I know why you're so fucked up, because like, you know, <laughs> you, you saw shrunken heads, you know, and I mean, people would buy that and hang it up in their living room, you know, so... <laughs> Oh, that sounds really <laughs> weird. Um, but I mean, also, don't forget, you know, all the central areas in Hamburg were working class. They weren't gentrified like they are now, you know. They were interesting. They were working class areas. Everybody knew each other. You know what I mean? So there was all that. It was a real community. I mean, you're, you are from a working class family. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read about that. And also, um, I just wondered what then did a working class family give you that has been useful in your life in your attitude in your in the way that you've worked through your life what what do you think they left you with in that way probably everything because it I don't even know if it was a process but now I'm just so proud of where I came from you know because of our you know, the whole family background, uh, being incredibly unpretentious, <laughs> that's a gift, right? So, I mean, it also leaves you with a lack of self-esteem because there's also that, well, all that stuff out there is not for us. So as a singer, because I already sang as a child, so there was the sense of, well, but I want to be on that television where those other people are, you know, and, and I would voice that to my family, you know, my grandmother. And my grandfather and there was a sense of no that's for other people you know so there is that but then it took me all my life to go well you know if I hadn't had to work through that that I mean I'm only now finding my my true self-esteem now I mean you know so so I think it's it's a gift but you don't necessarily know it's a gift until later in life you know that's a really interesting point because I, I come from a working class family and I have the same vision. No one in our family had been to university. No one had ever worked in, in the wider term, the arts or a creative industry. And it did seem like an unreal thing to want. Yes. Um, and this lack of self-esteem can also be a driving force in your yeah. life. It, so it do you feel yeah. it was that? It was that. I mean, but when you're young, you kind of work through all kinds of pain. But you don't necessarily, in my case, I was never really in touch with myself, you know? I just worked through the pain blindly because that's when you do when you're young. You know, there's a lyric by the Pet Shop Boys, which, which is one of my favorite lines. We could do anything, we're fearless when we're young, you know? So we work through the pain and but we don't realize that it, there's all that pain there, you know, we just work through it, you know? So, so uh, 
I had to, you know, it, I mean, to, to say it was hard, it would, would be an understatement, you know. Um, what, what music yeah. were you around? What music did your parents play and what music was sort of played at home? I was brought up by my grandparents and they had, a, they had an Elvis collection um, and they had a Beatles collection and they had um, German Schlager music, of course, you know. So I would listen to anything on the radio, anything that was on the radio I knew. And that would be my education. But then also the direct, they had this like, uh, I think there were 10 inch records at the time, right? And, and seven inch records. So they had all that. So I grew up with a bit of history there, you know, which, uh, and the Beatles were still big when I grew up as well, you know, I mean, it wasn't like they were gone at all. And, and especially because they become famous in Hamburg, um, they were so very present, you know. Um, Didn't so your mother up, work at the Star Club? She worked at the Star Club and at the top 10 after that. I can never uh, remember the sequence of it, but I think the top 10 was the after the, the Star Club. Yeah, she, she knew the Beatles. She, she knew them briefly when nobody, you know, knew who they, they were just a band playing. And that's why my mother ended up staying uh, a waitress in the work in the red light district because she wanted to be around music that would, that's what it was initially about for her um, and so she just stayed on and then later kept you know her entire life and she worked in the in the red light district so did my aunts and my uncles and my stepfathers and my, you know so it's like a real um yeah so, and, and to this day, I mean, the, the, those are the types of characters I write about, you know, in case I mean, anyone's sounds... wondering. <laughs> well, it's also a very sort of streetwise type environment. And I can imagine that in that environment, you grow up very quickly. I know that you started, well, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, my grandmother was hell-bent on protecting me from all of the seediness that she didn't want, because she said, you know, my daughter ended up there and this, you know, your mother and your, and you are not, if it's the last thing I do, you know, you, you will not ever enter one of those places and go. So she really kept me secluded. I mean, she really did keep me out of that whole environment. Um, you know, I, it's, you know, except the, the walks around the area. And I mean, we lived there, so it was nice, but she really, I mean, until the time I left home, I left home quite early, but I was a teenager and um, she really kept me on a, on a leash, you know, she didn't want me to get into any trouble at all. <laughs> so. you, you mentioned Elvis Presley and, uh, and also Schlager music. I don't know who that might have been, Mariana Rosenberg or. Yes, uh, also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, these are real voices. These are incredible voices. So was was it that that appealed to you about about the people that they were listening to at that time? And when did your musical tastes start to diverge from theirs? I think, I mean, in Schlager music, you had a, a huge amount of bad voices too. You know, uh, people. But but it was about the songs. It was about a song structure. You know, it was about um, verse, bridge, chorus. 
you know, like a real proper songwriting thing. And I think that's what I learned from the radio and from the records, you know. And then, of course, if there was a, a great voice, even better, you know. Um, but I think I also learned just radio, radio songs, songwriting, you know. And then, um, and I, I think it was when, you know, I heard, when I had grown up just a little bit, you know, um, Elton John, people like that, that's when I really got into voices because I, I, his, his earlier music, you know, his voice is just incredible. And um, so I, that's when I really became aware, you know, of uh, what people put across in, in their voice. When did you realize that you had a voice? I sang from, from lit, it sounds really weird, but from when I was born, of course, I didn't know I had a voice, you know, but my, my family told me later that I was actually sitting on my rocking horse age two and they were trying to get my attention, but I was like hum, humming and singing and I, they couldn't get my attention. So I was always singing by the age of five, I was making demo tapes. And I mean, they were children's songs, you know, they, they were nothing. But then sort of by age eight, nine, I was like, I was singing Schlager and I was singing whatever was in the charts. And, um, you know, and I can't remember. Yeah, and the hit parade, we had this program, which you might know the hit parade uh, on television. So I would, you know, every song I would sing, I would record, I, you know, I would say to my grandmother here, send that off to my favorite singer, you know, find out her address, you know. So I was really becoming um, not so much aware, because, you know, I had no, I don't think my voice would have had a lot of character then, you know, but um, I just knew I wanted to sing and that's all I was interest, ever interested in, you know. And then, you know, one day there was a family celebration and all the family were there and there were like 50, 60 people there. And then someone said, and I said, oh, I'll go up on stage. And I, I was, I think I was 10. It was my first time on the stage. And I remember fainting, like almost, you know, like, because I realized something was happening here that I had no, and then I just sang some Schlager and, um, and, and, and everybody was applauding, saying, well, that was really good. And I, I, I seem to remember that incident. It must have meant something, you know. So, so I mean, maybe that was the point where I thought, ooh, these people are actually reacting to something here, you know. So, I mean, one of the interesting things is you mentioned that your grandmother, obviously the matriarch of the whole family, because she sounds like she was the, <laughs> the, the strong dominant yeah. uh, figure. And yeah. also that the idea that you could be in television, i.e. follow your creative path, was alien mm -hmm. to your family. Mm -hmm. So how did they react when you said, and I know this comes a bit later, but when you said, OK, I'm off to Berlin? Yeah, I actually, I'm trying to remember, because I, I left home quite early and uh, moved in with my mother which was weird and then I sort of went between London and Berlin I started going to London kind of running away you know on the ferry from Hamburg you know um, so uh, so I'm trying to remember I think I I might have gone to London first even for a short time you know and then I went back to finish school and then you know got went back again to London went to and then I think I then went to Berlin um, 
yeah, I, I, they did, I mean, my grandmother was very sad. She didn't like it, you know. Um, but there was, I mean, nothing could stop me, you know. And also leaving your friends behind and realizing there's a big change happening. So what sort yeah. of Berlin did you enter into? Because this is Berlin pre-war. Uh, it's, it's an island, in a sense, mm. in East Germany, where you go through mm. these corridors to get there. It's an mm. island full of people who were escaping, uh, having to go um, to the army, young yes. people, mainly. Yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, it was a vibrant, incredible city. Yeah. What, what did you yeah. see it as when you got there? Yeah, it was really nice because it was a time where it really didn't lag behind London in terms of being really, really vibrant and interesting, which now, I mean, you know, or I think it was probably maybe even the one time where it was that it was insane. It was an insane place. Um, I don't know if you've seen Mark Reeder's movie about you know, Berlin, you know, I mean, that was his experience. Mine was partly a little bit different, but it was, it was, there was that and it was just nuts and everybody could do what they wanted. And because it wasn't about money, Berlin wasn't about money. So in all the bars and clubs and venues and everywhere, you had just people from all walks of life. You had all the artists and you didn't have to have money or be famous, um, but they all came together. And that, that's the one main difference that, uh, you know, you could stand next to David Bowie or a, a, one of the, you know, famous German painters or uh, whatever artist, and you're a nobody, but you know them and you hang out with them, and, you know? So that was what made Berlin so incredible. Nobody gave a shit about money. Nobody yeah, I had to Mark, I talked to Mark Reeder the other week and, yeah. uh, and I know him as well, but it's just so mm. fascinating talk because he mentioned all that that you're saying and also that we forget that uh, West Berlin was so small in comparison to what Berlin yeah. is today <laughs> and and this idea of bumping into people and also yes. that you didn't need much money to live yeah and everyone was looking for something to do in a sense so yeah. creatively yeah. Yeah. so you could you could quickly meet and work with other people so yes. how did that show itself what happened to you I mean, you would literally, the most famous club was the jungle. Um, you would literally meet people there and they would say, hey, who are you? You know, you look interesting. So, you know, shall we uh, move in together or shall we, you know, do a project? I'm, I paint, you know, and I do this and I do that. I mean, that's how it would work, really, you know. And you made a lot of friends and, and people found you, you know, if you were, a hit on the dance floor, you know, people would find you incredibly interesting and you've become a bit of a local, you know. And I mean, I started singing in bands and, and we became a quite really well known overnight, like, you know, and then there were other bands um, and they were the same and, and we would compete, uh, there, you know, because it was such a small city in a way. Um, there was so much competition, but it was really healthy, you know. Um, so... Yeah, and you could go, I mean, you know, you had all the, the bands performing locally. And that's what made it really exciting too, you know. Um, and and um, all the new wave groups and all that, you know. So, so how did Berlin affect your sort of musical knowledge and your musical experience and also then how you developed your voice? Yeah, I mean, Berlin just gave you permission, I think, you know, to, to explore because, you know, you could get 
rehearsal rooms cheaply. So I rented one, you know, and then you'd go in with people and, and, and you know, I did soul music, 60s garage music, psychedelic, you know, I try, because there was a big 60s revival scene. Um, and then in the bedroom, we also did some, you know, Depeche Mode, Eurythmic type of stuff, very badly, and some really great, batshit, crazy electronic, I mean, literally just all happening, you know, at the same time. And then, and I was kind of figuring out, well, I don't know how my voice would fit into all that. Um, and um, one day I went to a record shop in uh, off just off the Kurfürsten Damm in Berlin and I was going through 60s garage compilations um, to buy and the guy young really young guy who worked behind the counter his name is Zaid um, came up to me and said have you ever heard Martha Reeves or the Supremes have you ever heard soul music and I, I don't know why he did that there's no reason why you know and I said well no, yeah, no, not, you know, maybe not really, you know, and he said, you know what, I'm going to order you a couple of compilations and come back next week and pick them up. So he ordered um, Martha Reeves compilation and the Vandellas and uh, Supremes. And that changed everything. It changed. So I was, I was messing around with all these different styles, you know. But tell me, and before then, you say what it changed, when you listen to that music and you listen to their voices, mm. what did you understand from that that you could take from that? That there was a different world out there um, where emotions come into play and emotions are the operating, you know, the, the operative system there. Um, it's all about feelings and emotions that I had not taken into account. Um, they were singing about everyday things too, but they were singing in, about them in a way that just went straight to the core of you, you know, and, and that was like, I mean, Martha Reeves, her earlier stuff, there's a really simple song, love, love, love makes you do foolish things, you know, but when she sings them, she puts it across, something whole, something bigger opened up, you know, and I mean, the production, the sounds, all of it, you know, it just went straight to your heart. And I went, oh God, how do I, so now I have that. And, and I want to, that's, that's me, this, this is it, you know. And uh, so I started practicing and rehearsing and then combining that with, you know, I would then sing gospel badly at that time over our bedroom electronic shit, you know, and, and also in the, in the 60s revival, you know, I was, and then I formed a soul band. So it was all, you know, and I, I just couldn't put, I couldn't, so produ music production and then my singing voice had to be somehow brought together. And I think to this day, I'm still trying and, and exploring. And there are songs that I sing where my voice just doesn't sound right. But because I've written the song, I like it, I'm going to sing it somehow, you know. So some songs work better than others, I think, you know. And um, some songs might be more successful in terms of the, the production and the way my voice sounds, you know. So I mean, there's no recipe which I have, you know. That you know that you know when Aretha Franklin sang a song, she made it all her own, you know. Where, and and Aretha always sounds like Aretha, but I I 
I don't have that gift. I, I tend to sound different all the time, you know. And there are songs sometimes that I sing where that is me. What comes out is, is sounds like the, the ultimate me. So there are songs like that, but then there are other songs where that doesn't happen and I have to see how I make it work, you know. I mean, so. those, those bands in Berlin were the Subtones and Billy and the Deep, I think, that you were, yes. you were yeah. talking about. Um, yeah. Where, you know, when, when you um, sing someone else's song, and I know this is early on in your career, um, where was the moment, and you sort of mentioned this a little bit, saying that you, you, you don't always know if you transfer the emotion of the song, but you have to somehow find the emotion within you yeah. To be able, it might be another event that's happened in your life mm. to the event that the writer or the singer at first transported yeah. it. And you have to find that emotion and that event to be able to transport it. When, when did you start understanding that mm. this was the power of transporting a song? I th I'm trying to, trying to remember, but I think, I think when I when I sang with the subtones, I was only a guest singer there, you know, and with Billy and the Deep, I, I was really shouting, just shouting it out. And I still wasn't, you know what I mean, really exploring. I was just like, whatever came out happened and that was that, and then I moved on, you know? So it was just really funny. Um, so, but the process that I'm now, like exactly how you describe, you know, that I'm now very aware of, that might have happened around the time when I moved to London and we formed Electrode 101, because I remember hearing, I mean, there were sort of events that, that sort of changed the way I was looking at singing. Um, and one was, um, we covered Inside Out by Odyssey, you know? And that was a song that back in Berlin as a kid, you know, I, I, I'd heard that on the radio. And it made me stop in my tracks because he was like a really soulful number, but the singers weren't shouting and they were, you know, there was this really low sung, um, um, very mellow delivery of, of, I didn't know who the singer was, you know, but that song was just stuck in my head, you know? And then the other time that happened was again in Berlin, I was walk walking yet into yet another record shop and uh, I'm gonna tear your playhouse down by Anne Peebles was playing. And again, I just stood there and they had the record cover up by the till. So I could see who it was. And I said, yeah, give, give me that, you know? And that again, that changed everything because Anne Peebles always sort of, there's just this part of her which understates everything, you know, where she's not going for the high notes necessarily and she's not going. And that's when I realized there is a, there is something here to be explored, you know? So where do I really fit in? And why do these songs really appeal to me? I mean, I think there is a greater power in the understatement, which definitely mm -hmm. comes across in, in, in a lot of your work. Mm -hmm. um, and that is quite beautiful because it makes the song stronger in some way. Mm -hmm. um, how do you view this sort of understatement? Um, well, sometimes I think, oh God, here I go again, singing, singing a song in a lower octave. And, and I'm sure people out there want to hear me belt out a song, you know. Um, so sometimes I think like, oh, here we go again, totally under, under challenging as well for my voice, but I want to put the emotion across. So I make that choice that that's, 
what matters, you know, the melody that I wrote and the emotion that I felt when I wrote the song, you know. And so I go for it and I'm like, oh God, here we go again, you know. So I'm, I'm really unsure of myself half the time, you know. And sometimes I notice that my voice really works, like I said, you know, with, with a song, even if it's understated. And other times I just think it's understated, you know. So it really varies. Now, you, you know, you were in Berlin, you were in these couple of bands and you were getting your first experience. And then you decide to go to London. What was that decision? Were you unhappy in Berlin or was it really, I want to experience something else now or I want to take my chance? Berlin started being very complacent. People started just hanging around and the heyday was over and gentrification slowly came in, you know? And, um, and I just said to my band members, I'm, I'm gonna go, you know, and, and uh, why don't you join me, you know? We, we see if we can, you know, so I'd made some effort to get us signed there and stuff, you know, so I'd be sending tapes to rough, to rough trade and all that, you know, so, so it was that, um, and also, you know, at, because I'd been uh, traveling to London a couple of times just to hang around and see, and, and I knew it was my home, I knew it was my second home, or my first, maybe even, I just knew. Why? Because pe people were behaving, I mean, Germany, Ger Germans are stuck up, man. And Hamburg is a very, pe people are very sort of timid and, and, and quite stuck up. And I just knew as a teenager and as a child, there has to be something else out there. And then you go to London and you go to the marquee to see a band, you know, and everybody's celebrating and everybody's talking, strangers talking to you. I'd never experienced that. I remember I started crying actually. Um, because I knew that existed out there, that people were being nice to you, you know, and people were into having a laugh and being less stuck up and, you know, and, and people just walking up to you because, you know, they might find you interesting and saying, do you want to drink? You know, that does not happen in Germany, at least not to me. So um, I knew I was going to go but it was just about finishing school and doing some studies and, you know, and then going to London to be in a band or to form a band and, and to, because by that time, um, you know, you did have electronic music out there and I thought, wow, you know, I, I want to be part of that. And then when I went, house music happened and bingo, <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted to put my voice on at the time. 19 hours. That's how much online video people are watching on average in a week. And the demand for video is only growing. If you're a content creator, you know the struggle of picking between quality and quantity to grow your channel, especially if you're on a tight budget. But who says you can't have both? With Storyblocks, you get all the stock content you need to create amazing videos fast. While most stock libraries have expensive pay-per-clip pricing, Storyblocks gives you unlimited downloads for one set price. Download anything from a library of millions of 4K and HD footage clips, After Effects templates, music, sound effects, images, and more. Everything is covered by our industry-leading licensing that lets you share your videos anywhere, anytime. Plans start at just $15 a month. Find all the stock you need and create faster than ever so you can tell your story your way. Visit storyblocks.com slash red circle to learn more. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. 
Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives for newly appointed agents. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers usbp. That's cbp.gov careers usbp. Right now at Safeway, save on all your favorite home scents and cleaning products for a fresh, clean home. Shop for deals on items like Glade candles and plug-ins, Febreze air fresheners, Clorox cleaners, Swiffer wet cloths, or Scotch-Brite sponges. Plus, deck the halls and shop for deals on items like mini light sets, holiday wrapping paper, holiday candles, and holiday cards. Offer expires December 26th. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for full offer details. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. And you, you went to these first clubs that were yeah, really I sort did. of opening up, weren't they? There was, uh, I think it was the Paul Oakenfold Night at Heaven that actually started in the club in Hungerford Lane. Do you remember the club behind Heaven, the little one? There was actually, Heaven was two clubs. It was the massive I do, club. the little was, one I went to yeah. later for some techno and stuff. I, I don't, yeah, 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 that little place, it was great. Yeah, yeah, it started there, and then it then it grew into the into the bigger club. I mean, almost immediately because yeah. it was one of those things. So you'd been there, hadn't you? You'd you'd actually experienced that. What what was it like? Because I went to Shum with Kim Mazel when that opened. Yes, I and, went uh, there, <laughs> and that was just genius. <laughs> you know, the, I met it, Mark Moore. I met Mark Moore there. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And said to him, I want to sing in your group. And he said, fine. (laughs) That was that. Um, so were you aware of who was doing what? Were you actually very aware? Oh God, of yeah. who, you know, I mean, so when you went out, you could sort of say, ah, look, there's so-and-so and make a no, beeline because, in a way. No, not at all, because that didn't happen in the beginning. In the beginning, I heard there's this new music, this new kind of music, which nobody knows yet. But there's a few people that go to heaven on a, I think, it, I don't know if it was a Wednesday or whatever it was, you know, Thursday, I have no idea. And that, and there, there are some strange dances that people do and, you know, and, and, and it's something to check out. So I just went and there were literally 20 people on the dance floor in the big room at heaven. And they were doing sort of robotic dances and 
they played acid house and there were some people standing around the dance floor with their, with their arms folded in front of them and they were very skeptical you know and there were some hip-hop guys and all all kinds of people standing there going nah you know and what the fuck is this you know and I I loved it immediately went back next week so now you didn't have 20 people on the dance floor but you had all the hip-hop guys and all the other guys also on the dance so this grew like wildfire three weeks later you had for for 500 people it really was that amazing you know and then there was no more you know the hip-hop guys don't like it and the rare groove guys don't like it they were all there you know so i mean the shoom when i was at shoom there was this massive energy to the club Mm. i mean it was it was absolutely incredible there was you know and 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 i really i really love that but tell me about this meeting with, with mark moore because um you must have gone up to him and he wouldn't have known who you are. So no, how, how did he react? Sung. No, because I, I hadn't sung on anything yet in, in, in England. Um, but I'd read a, an interview in the NME of, uh, where Mark was saying that anyone who's crazy enough can sing in S-Express. And of course, I loved theme from S-Express, you know. Um, there was a mystery to the, to it to the video too. I thought, wow, there are all these people, you know, in the video, and they're great. And um, so I saw Mark, and then plucked up all my courage and went up to him, and I said, "Hi, I'm a singer." And he said, "Oh, really?" And um, I said, "You know," and I saw in the enemy that <laughs> I could sing in your group. And he said, "Give me your phone number." And, you know, if something occurs, I'll, I'll give you a call. And he did. Uh, took a little while. And he called and said, could you come to the studio tomorrow to sing a couple of things? Could you so remember his reaction to the first time you sang? Yeah, I think they were very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So you then yeah. made a couple of tracks with him on that uh album didn't you I don't know how much you you worked on the album but um pimps pushers and prostitutes of course Mm. which is something and no Mm. breaks on my roller skates I think was something to do with him wasn't it or was that different actually you you mean the the song that I did later no breaks uh, sorry then I've got muddled up so let's go no there was a third song on 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 the S Express album and I can never remember what it was or what I did shame on me um, so no breaks from my roller skis. I did much later. I did like I don't know when it was, fifteen years ago. Oh, so. Okay, but the okay the, the but the songs with with Mark Moore and that experience with Mark Moore. What do you feel that that gave you? Because suddenly it feels like when I when I read about that period or I've, I've heard interviews with you about that period, it sounds like you suddenly found a little community to be in. Yeah, because uh, there you know we we were Hey Music Lover was a big hit. And we were booked to uh, play a lot of big festivals and things, you know. And uh, I was only the guest singer, so I could be pretty crazy, you know, and just sort of tag along, which I did. But I mean, I, I, I just loved all the people. They were nuts. They were all insane, you know, in a very good way. And Mark was sort of, you know, the, the mastermind behind it all. He just watched all the madness and found it funny, you know. Uh, 
it's, it's a bit sort of that Andy Warhol thing, you know, you watch the madness and you smile and you to yourself, you know, and, and, and we were booked a lot in Germany, playing crazy festivals in Italy. And, and so, um, yeah, I just had fun, you know. Um, I, was, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily fitted in with this, this group, but it was a, a massive experience, you know, really amazing. And I remember we did this, this thing in Italy, which I would love to get a, there's no video of it that, that we can get hold of. Um, we played in this uh, for a television station in in in, um, in uh, Napoli, in Naples, and I couldn't be bothered to mime to my part. <laughs> so first of all, I was wearing like a see slightly see through top, and everyone in the group thought it was hilarious because it wasn't really done. But to me, it was like normal, you know, just be a bit punk rock. And, and they were like giggling and, you know, so there was that. And then when my part came up, I want to take you higher. I just stood there, you know, looking bored. Mark thought it was hilarious. Every we we were shown the footage, you know, and Mark saw me not miming. And then anybody else would have kicked me out of the group, you know. Um, and he just thought it was hilarious. So it was really, you could just be yourself in S Express. Were you also writing songs at that stage and, and actually sort of developing your own uh, creativity in, in the background, as it were? I had, uh, I yeah, I'd already written a lot of songs in Berlin with the soul, with Billy and the Deep, but, and, and also another group, um, but in, in London, yeah, I, uh, on Pimps, Bushes and Prostitutes, I wrote the Who's going to pick me up when, which later became that song and that song and that song. Um, so yeah, I, I brought, I would always bring along some bits that I'd written. And uh, I, uh, at that time I had already written Talking With Myself too, which later became the Electribe song. Um, so were, were these songs, okay, I know you wrote some in Berlin on the way, but also in London, were these songs were uh, that started to get really influenced by your own um, experiences, your own relationships, your own feelings and whatever. Yeah. yeah, but that had always been the case, you know, always. Um, so I guess I just developed a little bit, you know, as a, as a writer, probably in earnest, you know, yeah. I mean, what I love about your story is that there's, there are uh, immense moments of highs, Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, the rejection and immense moments of lows. Yeah. There are the comebacks. There are the changes. It's sort of, it's, it's a very, it's like a, it's a film in itself, but a, yeah. you know, a very long film of different dynamics. And one of them is, you know, it includes the cliche of the advert. Mm. I mean, it's sort of the cliche in the in the music business, isn't it? Someone puts an advert in a newspaper. You know, El, Elton John looking for a you know, a writer and along comes Bernie Taupin. And yes, it's similarly, yes. but what I love about your advert was the the terminology, what you wrote. Can you remember what you wrote? Yeah, Soul Rebel Seeks Musicians, Genius Only. Now, if I had seen that advert and I was a musician and I have no talent in this department, but I was a musician <laughs> and I saw that Genius Only, that would scare the shit out of me. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I just wanted to make sure I don't get because you know there are always a lot of song so-called songwriters around, but they just want to have a hit record and write for commercial commercials and so you know and I just didn't want them to even come along you know, do you know someone who replied to, to that ad and he won't remember this Glenn Matlock no from the pistols oh, uh, wow. who at the time was obviously no longer in the pistols you know and he he left a message and I I, he left a message on my answering machine. He won't, he would not remember me probably or that incident. But my answering machine had uh, the pistol song EMI on on my on my answering machine. When <laughs> so when you called me, it would play a pistol song. And then there was a message when I got home saying I wrote that. <laughs> so, so I called him back and we talked, but I, I don't know why, but we never met. Uh, uh, you know, I think he said, you know, I'm, I'm forming a band or I'm doing something. And somehow, for some reason, um, I, I hooked up with the other guys instead. So, so but when you, <laughs> that is an amazing story. Amazing, you know, <laughs> the idea of you and Glenn Matlow is also phenomenal. The, um, <laughs> did you meet the geniuses and did you think they were geniuses when you met them? <laughs> no, because they look like an East German rock band when I met them. They, they will, I think. They, will, they would hate me for saying that. No, because they were just starting to dabble in the same kind of music, the acid house and the house and the dance music that I was interested in. But when they came, they didn't really make that clear. You know, they just sort of said, well, we're in this band and, you know, we don't like our singer and we're looking for someone. And I said, nah. <laughs> So they kept calling me, Brian kept calling me saying, yeah, but we have a studio in Birmingham, you know, and you can bring your songs. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm coming, you know. So, and I basically walked in with three demos. And, and when Brian heard the Talking With Myself demo, which was of course completely different from what it later became, he said, you know, Billy, I think that's the song that we should do. And I said, okay. So that's what we did. And so I think I did find my geniuses. <laughs> I really feel, especially, you know, now listening to the new, the new, you know, the new and in inverted commas album that, that's out. I just can't overstate how brilliant they are. And at the time, you know, sometimes when you're making music in a group, you don't even realize it. What was the dynamic between you at first? Were, were you very much in control in the studio or were they, or was it really, a sort of thing of the contribution came from every angle because sometimes there is a there is a dynamic and and I can tell that you are quite a strong character even from this interview you know well, and I that's would, probably would, comes through your grandmother <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so I, I mean I would bring the records you know I would bring Julian Jonas jealousies and lies and, and and I said that's the production you know and I would bring persuasion and you know I would bring soul records which they already knew they already loved all that music um and uh, you know but then of course so they they also were already playing around with stuff and so it came together and I think their influence can't be overstated you know and even though I was always moaning about this and that element of the production or you know um, it was very much 
um, everybody br brought their influence in. And that, that, I can't overstate how much you can hear that on this new album. Because when I listened to Joe, Joe was the, the drum guy, but also doing the hooks, you know, the, all those beautiful Kraftwerky hooks and stuff. I mean, wow, you know, he just came up with that. And that was suddenly just there for me to sing over, you know, and then, and so I could go on and on about all of them bringing something that they already had, but that they had not been able to explore fully, you know, so I think we, we gave to each other, you know, in terms of a personal dynamic, it's difficult, you know, if you ever try to join for brummies, you know, um, I mean, they, they're, not, they're their own breed and they were already a gang. So I was very much the outsider, you know, and uh, we, we became closer as time went on, you know, but there were also frictions and pressures and, you know, it all went to pop at some point, you know, so, but I but certainly success, felt- You know, you did have success initially and, yeah. and, I, and, but you stayed in London, didn't you? And they were in Birmingham. Yeah. during this period and you went up there and, and recorded and then right. um the album came out but you 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 had success how did that success feel and what was your vision of that success where did you think that was now going to go it's so funny because i never thought of it it was almost like i'd come from berlin i went through some real poverty in, in London and suddenly we weren't poor anymore. It was actually the same for the guys, you know, we were all piss poor before that and suddenly we had a bit of money. Um, but in terms of the success, I never thought about it. I just went, yeah, well, that's what I was trying to say all along in my songs, you know, and, and suddenly everyone's writing, here's this great new soul singer. And, and they were interviewing me with questions that, that that reflected that and I was like yeah 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 of course yeah <laughs> you know so but I wasn't big-headed about it I was just yeah well that's my story and finally I can tell it you know so I was I, I wasn't even stopping for a minute to think about it I never thought about it I just you know because I was the concepts for videos and clothing and style that all came from me as well so I was busy. I was just busy, you know, and then every now and then I would do these interviews going, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, and moving on to whatever happened next. You know, I mean, you so. talked earlier about sort of self-esteem and a lack of self-esteem. This really suggests that there wasn't a lack of self-esteem by that stage. No, but there you... was. I just oh, didn't right. stop. Yeah, I just didn't stop to reflect on anything. So what, what was the lack of self-esteem at that stage when you're when you're successful and you are getting, you know, I mean, you got critically great attention when mm -hmm. journal music journalists start liking your stuff. Mm -hmm. I think for artists, mm -hmm. it, you know, it means a huge amount. It means a huge amount for the audience. Mm -hmm. But the critical side of the audience loving it as well mm -hmm. is, you know, is another sort of positive. So I just wonder what yeah. that self-esteem was like and that feeling. I never, I was too busy trying to be myself, trying to be myself, not being myself, you know, I was just trying so hard. I was too busy. I never noticed, you know, I'm on top of the pops shimmying away. When I look at it now, those performances, <laughs> they were strange, but they were also quite good, you know, because I was taking dance lessons from one of the best dancers ever, Suki Miles, you know, 
because and she taught me all that stuff you know and I, so I really I just wanted to be the best I could be you know finally you know what I mean and I would always like um, try and add something else to it I was never satisfied you know we took Suki on tour with us I wanted her on stage next to me you know I wanted to do like a, a dancing together I just didn't want to be just by myself there you know and and uh so I was always just trying to add the next thing to try and be myself and figure out what else can I do to make this work, you know. What did the yeah. Depeche Mode gig do to your, you know, to supporting Depeche, Depeche Mode? What did mm. that do to your confidence? Because it does sound horrendous. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I, I mean, like somebody said I should do a, like a eight part Netflix series about my whole experience in the music industry because I haven't really it's never been written down or you know I'm not about to write a book anytime soon um it was at, in those days Deepesh Mode's fans were sort of really hardcore you know and they they would just not want a, any support group on stage it didn't matter who you were so we were bottled of stage every night you know and we had to stand there and take it and face it sometimes I didn't want to go out sometimes I didn't go out because I just it, I, I was that distraught by it all you know I, I didn't understand it at first I'm like oh my god I'm gonna do this for two months you know and the band Depeche Mode they were feeling sorry for us you know and they said yeah they do that to all of the groups you know and um, so and I think the band started breaking up because of it because we were just quite unhappy you know well the pressures must have been immense you know if you go yeah. out on stage and you're having yeah. you know missiles of certain sorts thrown at you one thing you know that um, you had tomatoes thrown at you and I just thought like, <laughs> what how do people get hold of tomatoes at a gig they bring them in plastic bags in Paris it's in Paris it's a fucking sport and apparently <laughs> <laughs> apparently the Beatles didn't go back for 14 years after they played in Paris once earlier in their career because they bring plastic bags I don't know if they still do it now those bastards they bring plastic bags with coins shoes tomatoes vegetables and just to fucking throw them at you and there was this there was a there's a, see there were all these things where, where now I can laugh about it and the group can could laugh about it at the time nobody laughed about it there was this one thing where we were playing a song and the lights would always go go down at in that particular moment and and the song because there were I think there were three nights in Paris in this big stadium and um and so the lights went down you know because we were already being you know bottled off stage and stuff and we were standing there and the lights went down and i felt this drizzle and i thought that's interesting like a rain effect coming from you know somewhere and when the lights went back up i sort of turned around and les on his bass keyboard at his bass keyboard he was standing there covered in tomatoes <laughs> And one of the tomatoes had switched the keyboard off. And we were all looking at him like, oh my God. And it was so funny, but it wasn't at that time. You know what I mean? And then I remember going after the show and I turned around to the band and I said, after the song, we're off stage, we're going. 
we're not, you know, so we, we went off stage. Then we went down to the canteen to eat uh, with Jipesh Mode there. And the caterers, they said, would you like some tomatoes with your, <laughs> with your meal? You know, so they were taking a mick out of us, you know, but at that time we were not smiling, I can tell you, you know. No, I can imagine that. I mean, it's funny to hear a story like that. You know, it yeah. is definitely funny to hear a story like that. But to be on the receiving end, night after night, and yeah. to have that humiliation, yeah. um, it's something that grows within you and is yeah. very destructive. Um, yeah. How do you think that played into, you had the, you know, you had the manager, Tom Watkins, who uh, was also a quite destructive uh, yeah. character right um, and he was trying to split up the band as I understand mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is sort of a classic thing that that yeah. you know some managers do and I, I never know where it really comes from did he have his yeah. reason did he have a particular reason financial he wanted someone solo well, he wanted this I mean to be honest uh, he tried he did it to Bros and the he tried to sack Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys I mean you know but I, a lot of people in his office, his staff, and, and also his co-manager, they would take me aside and they would say he does that to all the women. So go figure, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's terrible. And um, of course, you know, you, so you have this horrendous humiliation with Depeche Mode. You, you know, you have the problems with Tom Watkins. Mm. Then you don't have a hit with Inside Out. And mm -hmm. then you have the humiliation with the second album in mm -hmm. terms of the record company. Can you tell me about that moment that it was rejected and what that well, did to I, I think we'd already been arguing as a band between us, you know, so there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of good feelings left for, for many reasons after the tour, you know. Um, and, and we were trying to, I remember we were musically unsure of ourselves, which listening back to the album now, it's crazy. Huh? We had, you know, we could have, I think we knew there was some, some stuff, but I don't, I don't think we were sure that we had an album, you know. Um, and we were also sort of put in the studio with a, another producer to help us out and, you know, all that big record company stuff that happens to groups, you know, and then I don't think we were very sure. And we did some other demos as well, which, uh, which uh, I'm not gonna um, put out there because we were just sort of, because I would come in with drum and bass, you know, my new, my, my latest discovery, you know, let's do some of that. And, and I remember the guys saying, yeah, okay, but I don't know if our demos are good enough. And, you know, so, and I think, so the final straw is then, you know, we deliver this album. And I mean, I mean, we did put across that there are a couple of mixes that might need looking at again, you know, but, but here it is, you know, here's, and then we were told it's a, it's a pile of shit. What, literally those words? Uh, well, our a and guy, someone put it to us. Um, at the time we'd gotten rid of Tom Watkins, so I can't remember who actually told us that we were, being dropped from the label. And we were told that the managing director had said, what's with this soul shit? <laughs> you 
so we then were without a deal. We tried to get signed and didn't get signed right away. And I think it was different times then because you didn't have the digital world out there where bands can just go, fuck it, we, we can release this, you know. I mean, you could form a label, but you'd have to be a very strong unit to do that. And, you know, because it was all about physical, you know, vinyl pressings, you know, um, and cassettes and, you know, whatever people did at the time. So I don't think that culture was out there yet of being totally self-sufficient. So I think we just broke up instead, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, rejection is a very hard thing to deal with. It's hard when you're not successful, but when you've been successful mm. and then you get rejected, it's a bit of a double whammy. So how did that make you feel inside? And what was your reaction to it? Did you sort of hide away at first? I went to Warner Chapel and, and they had a demo studio, a very good one, actually. And I said, look, I don't really know what to do, but, you know, um, we broke up. I told them the band had broken up and I said, well, let me do some demos, you know, in, in the studio. So I, I, I did some demos, and, but I remember having absolutely no money. And so that was the hardest, actually, to be, yeah, to be, be really like without really worrying about having a roof over my head, you know? So I just did demos for quite a long time. I mean, I know that financial uh, uh, problem yeah. because if you, you know, I mean, yeah. after I, I, my career sort of died at one point, I had, <laughs> you know, before that I had a lot of money and I lost mm. everything. I lost my house because, mm. you know, you, you live on a certain amount of debt sometimes mm -hmm. as well. And exactly. when, when the carpet's pulled away, then, yeah. then there's really something, it's about existence and it's yeah. about that moment of existence. And yeah. that is crushing for your creativity for a while. Yeah. Was yeah. it for you? No, because I just did demos and songwriting. And, and so the creativity is just, I don't think I had any support network. I think that was the problem about what to do with it. You know, I had no manager, no band, uh, no co-musicians. You know, I would just sort of work with the odd person here and there. And um, so I think that was the problem more than anything, that I had no um, infrastructure in which to operate and, and have my voice maybe put out there again. Um, that didn't happen for two years. And it only happened when, because I was so fed up about, because I had at that, so too about, I would say a year and a bit after the band got dropped, I'd written Your Loving Arms, you know. Did you write that with David Harrow? Yeah, he did a bit of a techno-y little backing track, which I still have the cassette of, actually. And I wrote a song on top, you know. Uh, so I, I had Your Loving Arms and I had demoed it already, uh, pretty much sounding the way it ended up later sounding. And um, so I would go, around some record companies, you know, and I think the publishers probably helped me get a meeting here and there. And it was rejected absolutely everywhere. So I went to New York, was rejected there, you know, and later when it was a big hit in America, they were all like, oh shit, well, you know, we, we wish we would have signed it. And I'm like, yeah, well, you didn't, you know. So anyway, no one signed that. And then um, I, I remember, and then I had a really terrible manager for a short while, you know, who did absolutely nothing. 
And one day I was so fed up. And I said to him, you know, don't you think I should do a short showcase gig with my demos? Um, and he just went, well, I don't get involved in that sort of thing. And that was the final straw. And I just called the jazz cafe and said, let me do a gig there. You know, and they said, sure. And I was signed literally the next day. Now, your loving arms was in, in essence, for me, I see that as a gay man, as a gay anthem. Uh, you know, and it was something, and I have wonderful memories of that song. Mm. And mm. there's something so warm and wonderful. And um, it's almost like an insular experience of love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very, it's a very beautiful song. And you. Um, you perform that in uh, Miami at a, a Gay club in Miami. Can you tell me about that? All the that time. Performance? I performed it. I think there wasn't a gay club in Miami where I didn't perform. Oh. <laughs> it was, oh my God, it was great. I mean, my first performance in was in New York at Junior Vasquez Club. Um, and I can never remember if it was Sound Factory or Twilo at the time. It might have been the last night at Sound Factory, actually. And I had no idea that the song was already so big in the clubs, like I had zero idea. And I remember six in the morning, my performance, you know, and I'm coming out and this wave of shout screams and love, you know, coming towards me, like literally like this wave. And I hadn't even sung a note, the beat started and people went crazy. So that was the first time I realized, oh my God, this is happening big, which without Junior, wouldn't wouldn't have happened you know and I, I'm forever thankful and so then uh I would then later go back and then move I, I ended up moving to New York so then I performed around the United States and I, I would always go back to Miami but at that time when the song was at its at its biggest in in America Miami was incredible you know I mean literally just waves of love and it was as if myself and people had been waiting for that song you know because I remember in one club um, I said well she have been waiting long enough to sing that song and people just screamed when I said that you know and so it was just so beautiful you know such a moment yeah, yeah. no I mean as I said I mean that song for me is something very special and something of an of it is of an of an era and I was uh, listening to it this morning again mm. and it brought up all those uh, <laughs> wonderful feelings and emotions and warmth and that's yeah. why I think it's so beautiful now I'm going to jump jump because I want to talk about the album obviously <laughs> and this um this album was stuck in a sense in your drawer for yeah. 30 years yes. and, you, and you didn't <laughs> think about it you never thought about what that is you never listened to it in between never no. So when you finally took it out the drawer and listened mm. to it, how did you see the person mm. that had sung and written those songs all those mm. years ago to the person you are today? Well, it's funny because when I when we mastered the recordings, because they were very low level on the debt, you know, and so um, it took a lot of restoring and and trying different approaches to mastering to actually hear everything. And then, so once I could hear everything, I was amazed because actually every word was about what I was going through at that time. And 
to have had that opportunity at the time, I wasn't even aware of that, you know, again, something that maybe you don't appreciate when you're that close to it. But, you know, every word, every experience, I mean, it's about my relationship that I was in at the time. And then about some other things too, of course, you know, but yeah, so I'm, I was moved. I was moved for, for, the, for the person I was, because I, I had never been moved before by that. I just did it, you know, you do it, you move on, you know. And the band breaking up wouldn't have, you know, exactly made anyone go back and listen again, you know. I'm sure that the group, the other guys probably didn't, you know. But now that, that actually made me feel very moved. What, what would your older self have said to your younger self at that time to make you feel better? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my God. Um, because an album is a snapshot of all these feelings, emotions and thoughts. So yeah. it is very much where you were at at that time. And as yeah. we change and develop in life, we reach yeah. another point, which is often more comfortable with ourselves, let's say, yeah. and, and who we are and yeah. not having the same problems and angst and whatever that we yeah. had when we were younger so you know is is there something very comforting about knowing mm. um not only that i mean not only that the music is fantastic and not only what you created there has immense value today mm. but knowing that you got through a period and got to where you are today mm. well i think i'm not sure exactly what i would say but what strikes me is the realness in the lyrics um and the delivery, I was just shouting it out. Um, I mean, the, 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 the determination with which I'm telling my story. And I think there are two examples. One is she, the first song, Insatiable Love. She flies into the room just in time for his call and it's time for a change. You know, so that was happening. And I probably did that daily, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, this kind of telling, and then this, um, she wants to eat the whole world. She wants. She tosses and turns like a secret ballet, you know, uh, aching for the thrill, the thrill of not feeling pain. Wow, I mean that's heavy shit, you know. And I was, I, I, how did I even come up with those words? So I would say something about, well, girl, you certainly kept it real, you know. And then the other uh, song, deadline for my memories, where I'm like, there's a body on the floor that looks like me. You know, I mean, that's me crying. That's about me crying for the breakup of the relationship, you know, and thinking, well, that's, is this me that's going through all this trauma, you know? Has and it changed your memories of those times? Because, you know, like we have, we have times in our life where we feel, oh, I was pretty unhappy back then. But then mm -hmm. later on, you look back and you look upon it differently and you don't see it in the, in the same way. And this album is connected to a lot of difficult experiences, not yeah. just musically, but yeah. also what was happening with your career and everything yeah. back then. It, has this actually sort of given you a warm feeling of some sort of positive outcome? Well, it was the beginning of me getting in touch with myself because the relationship breakup, which went on and on and on, um, and me acting like some nutcase about it, you know, started the process of who, who am I? Um, and I bought all these books, all the 
spiritual and self-help and esoteric stuff, you know, about who am I really? And who's this person that's looking for someone to validate me, you know, and, and that didn't happen. So what else is there? So I bought all these books and it helped me tremendously. I mean, that's the, that was the start of me going, there's something here that I haven't yet done, you know, and that's me. <laughs> I've never been to me. <laughs> I've been to paradise. <laughs> Seriously. So it started the process which is ongoing today. So without that, I wouldn't have started that, you know. I without think that's there being literally nothing left of me, you know, who I thought I was, you know what I mean? That fighting, fighting woman, you know, um, and that hadn't come to fruition in my relationship. And then there was nothing left of me, of the old me, you know, and then I started on what, what do I do now, you know? I mean, I think that's so amazing because that. <laughs> creativity, creativity is also um, a compensation for our wounds in life. And, yes. and we work through our wounds through creativity. I'm a writer today. And for me, that's so important to do. But at the same time, yeah. I've done a shitload of therapy <laughs> as <Yes>. well. <laughs> because therapy is something where I've, really realized i believe who i am and become mm. much more comfortable with who i am yet mm. yet i can still look back at my wounds let's call mm. them my childhood wounds or whatever mm. and be able to to um take things out of that for my mm. creativity my writing today mm -hmm. so yeah. has it changed the way that you deal with creativity because you now have a greater awareness of who yeah. you are Oh, God, yeah, I'm really in control now. And I make a lot of mistakes still, because, you know, I produce my own records now. You know, I've got four albums on the go, which are all hopefully um, nearing completion soon. And, um, you know, and I'm really having to pull my thing together, you know, to make them happen. Um, and because being the producer, which, you know, I, I'm having to learn as I go. You make mistakes and I do, you know, but generally the outcome's been uh, in, immense. I'm, I'm so happy with it. And the, the mistakes I have to try and deal with them, you know, but so I'm, I'm really in control though now. I mean, the reaction to the album has been universally positive. The Electra, it's, yeah. Yeah, no. sorry, Electra, yeah. Wow. So yeah. absolutely, I mean, phenomenally positive. And it's almost like, yeah. you know, this is where the movie script comes. You, you right. know, <laughs> no one would have believed it. Do you know what I mean? That you can dig right. up an album 30 years ago and it is so, feels so current. Mm. And it, you know, people are so hungry for it. Yeah. And, and it. And it works so well. Now there must be an immense satisfaction going on within you that this was all worthwhile. Is that is that how you feel today? Yeah, I felt when the, the press articles started coming in, I was su more surprised than anyone. I honestly just expected another, you know, yeah, there's a couple of people who are going to pick up on it, but nothing will really happen. And then it all sort of started going on. And, um, and I was elated. I was really 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 happy you know really, really i mean just thrilled really and surprised <laughs> so well it's yeah. a brilliant album i mean i you know i've been through it a few times so the, the last <laughs> few days and i've really you know enjoyed um the tracks on the uh, on the album and mm -hmm. each individual track has um 
they're very strong you know there's 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 not a weak track you know it's all oh, very strong okay. and and but that really impressed me that there was so mm -hmm. there was so much there and you you hear that and you look back and you think who was that record company executive i know to right say, you know this is a part of shit tell <laughs> me about it I know it's and, and we believed it. That's the bad thing about it. We we I think deep in our hearts we actually thought, oh God, you know, because we we were discussing a couple of the mixes and we were saying, oh, that's not very good yet, you know. So rather than someone saying, yeah, that's fine, it's something we can fix, someone said, you know, get lost. Do you know what I mean? So it, yeah, it really broke us. I I'd think. love to see his face today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he cares. I don't think he would remember any of it. You know what I mean? Because, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I, but that is, I mean, I know revenge is silly, but in a way there is this, <laughs> there is this little taste of, of revenge because it's in yeah. the air that this mistake, you know, yeah. he made such a mistake years ago. Yeah. And that mistake has led to something which is really fantastic and perfect for today you. now you talked about these new albums and one of them is inspired by french music i understand uh, charles yeah. asnavour jacques Brel. and yeah. was it was was french music always in your life because if i remember my you know youth my right. mum loved these sort of torch singers and charles yes. asnavour was amongst them of course them. you know i mean charles asnavour was the french liza minnelli you know and and his songwriting his words that what he wrote about was so ahead of its time. And it, they, he was singing, you know, the, the song, What Makes a Man, you know? So here's a young straight man singing about what it is to be gay and being persecuted by society. That was not done, you know? That was no a no-go, you know? And he had hits with it, you know what I mean? Hit records and I mean, all of that is so powerful and, um, but generally, I grew up with um, the albums inspired by everything French, French movies, movie soundtracks of the 1970s, uh, especially a composer, Francois de Roubaix. Um, that's how that all started. I heard his, his music and I thought, holy crap, I mean, really? I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then it quickly turned into something totally different. Uh, um, but you can hear, you know, that influence. And then it's about my some of my favorite films, which are either French or about, or set in Paris. Um, and the characters in those films, I mean, I read the film scripts and stuff, you know? And so I always make up stories around what else could have happened or how did the person in that movie really feel if they're not saying that in the script, you know? So I write songs around those characters. So it's about all that. And then I thought, well, and that would be the opportunity to also sing my favorite Asnavour songs and a couple of Jacques Brel as well. I mean, my favorite yeah. Asnavour song is Yesterday When I Was Young. I did that and, one. Yeah. Oh my God, I just love that song. And, and guess who I played it with the as, as members of the Tinder Sticks, the group, the Tinder Sticks. And because I wanted to make it really weird, like some, like a hypnotic movie soundtrack, you know? And I discovered the Tinder Sticks film soundtracks and other stuff they've done. And I thought I should just ask those guys, but you don't just go and ask an existing group to come and play, but they came, three of them and played. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even believe I'm in the studio with them, you know? And uh, 
so so they, they're very strange and then uh yes two days ago we recorded a 40-piece string orchestra as well for this and i couldn't be more thrilled you know it's just like yeah and that sounds like it's a really heart project you know what i mean and i mean yesterday when i was young he he was 25 when he wrote that it's just crazy that what that man did you know so yeah he was also an amazing film actor Yes. And, and as well. And I, you know, but yesterday that when I was young, I've always thought, although it's it's the, re, you know, the, re, the regret and everything. Yeah. Um, it's the song that I definitely want at my funeral. Yeah, right. <laughs> Even I though know. I don't regret anything in my life, it's still the <laughs> song that I want. Because <laughs> I know everyone's going to be in tears. It's going to really cause havoc. <laughs> but how brave it was to sing about these feelings that someone has. Uh, you know, he was singing about an old man who regrets, you know, everything that he hasn't done. And he was 25 when he wrote that. Or, you know, when he wrote things like, uh, what makes a man about, you know, I'm strip teasing in a gay bar, you know. And um, this was after, I mean, this man was slaughtered by the French press. He said he couldn't sing, he was ugly, he was short, and he shouldn't be in show business, you know. He was booed off stage. He was, the press hunted him down, you know. And this guy just went, fuck you. And then when he did, I think it was La Boheme, he did that, that performance, you know. And then suddenly applause came. And then he goes and writes about a gay man when you, you're not supposed to be gay. I mean, this, this guy, <laughs> you know, crazy, amazing. Yeah, but this, uh, I just finally, I want to end now because it's finally that when you talk about, you know, in that way with so so much emotion about, uh, you know, another another singer and, and their experience and how they have had to deal with the world, I can mm -hmm. see where your power came from and where you've had to deal with your experiences mm -hmm. along the way that have been, you know, unbelievably fantastic and unbelievably terrible. You know, they've been extremely hard and yeah. and and come out of it in such a positive way with mm -hmm. such a positive future. So in the end, I just want to thank you for all the oh. creativity you've put out into the world. Thank Some you. Some of the most amazing music, particularly this album. But I still have to say, because it's my favourite and it has such <laughs> an appeal to me, your loving arms was something that so touched me uh, oh. back then. And it was such a wonderful feeling and because as a gay man and this sort of gay anthem of feeling having these arms around me yes you know oh, you know what i mean God. and protected Don't that was me me what the, song, the song was about so <laughs> no, you're gonna make cry. Me cry. <laughs> oh my god thank you so much thank you Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.